The Bible tells us that there is a core temptation, maybe referred to as the temptation, out of which all other temptations we face flows. The core temptation that all of us as people made in the image of God wrestle with is this desire to be our own God. In one sense, it makes sense. It seems like the most likely way to happiness and fulfillment. We learned in the Proverbs, there is a way which seems right, but it ends in misery. The farther we as a culture drift from God, the more we experience despair. The more we experience despair, hopelessness, anger, there is kind of this intuitive sense within us as a culture that things are unraveling and we just don't know what to do about it. Yet in the middle of a culture of despair, God is called a remnant of people to live as hope-filled people, to bear testimony to the reality of the gospel of Jesus. But that does raise a couple of questions. What exactly does that look like? And how do we do that? How do we actually live as hope-filled people in the midst of a culture of despair? Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next several months as we roll up our sleeves and we dig into 1 Peter. This morning, what we want to look at is the foundation, the very foundation stone upon which all of the rest of the theology of Peter will be built. So if you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is a fairly typical introduction in a first century letter. Immediately, the writer is identified. In this case, it's Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, and the recipients are identified as those who reside as aliens. The word alien is a reference to someone who has their citizenship in one country but lives in another country. With all of kind of the struggles, the troubles, the awkwardness of that. But it also then provides kind of a a metaphor that Peter uses, that we as Christians have our citizenship in heaven, yet we live out that citizenship as aliens on earth. Our values, our beliefs, our way of life, our purpose in life is all dramatically out of step with the world in which we live. We live essentially as aliens. He identifies aliens scattered. That Greek word is a word that talks about uh, specifically the Jews dispersed out of the land of Palestine, or what we would refer to as Israel. 
This is written approximately 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of those events. Uh, this is Nero came into power about AD 62. So it's sometime during the reign of Nero, probably early in that reign. It's sometime during this time period that the Apostle Paul is beheaded in Rome. Shortly after Peter writes his letters, he will be executed, crucified upside down on a cross. This is probably just the beginning of uh, the persecution under Nero and is about to ratchet under up ten times as the persecution will intensify uh, a great deal. So in Palestine, what we would think of as Israel, during this time, there is a high level of persecution, so many of the Jews have fled. It's estimated that approximately a million Jews remained in Palestine, but as many as three to four million had now fled out of Palestine, in this case to uh, Asia Minor, what we would refer to today as northern Turkey. So the recipients are both Jews and Gentiles who are beginning to go through uh, pretty severe stages of persecution. And then the introduction goes from fairly normal to one of the most in-depth, rich theological introductions in the New Testament. To those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So it identifies the recipients, and this would be true today of anyone who has trusted Christ as Savior. First, you have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. I don't know what you're going through as you walk through the doors this morning. You may feel abandoned. You may be, uh, feel forgotten. You may feel at times like God doesn't care. But actually, the opposite is true. At one time, you are nothing more than a sinner, misfit, and loser with virtually no hope. But for reasons unknown, this magnificent uh, confusing mystery of God is he in eternity past chose you to be his child, to be the recipient of his magnificent salvation through no uh, merit of your own, through no deserving of your own, God chose you. Now we don't have time this morning to go into kind of the wonder and the mystery and the confusion, all that other than just to accept this as part of the introduction of the text. The idea of foreknowledge is not just that God knows the future. In both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, the word know is used to describe sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. It is then this word that is, that is used in the word foreknowledge. It carries the idea that this is a warm, personal, intimate choosing by God. For reasons only God understands, with a heart of a father, lovingly, God has chosen you to be his child, to be sanctified by the Spirit of God, to be set apart for God's special 
blessing. Why? In order to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. The idea of sprinkled with his blood is a reminder that you, on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus, stand right in the presence of a holy God. You stand justified, righteous in the presence of God. And the idea then is you have been set free to walk in obedience. The idea of obedience is not, this is what God has done for you, therefore you have to follow the rules. The idea is more that apart from this salvation, you are confused and lost and desperately searching for that which ultimately will satisfy. But on the basis of this salvation that's come, through the choosing of the Father and the sanctifying of the Spirit, God has redeemed you so that you get it. You understand the path of God and you are able to walk in obedience. The last part of the introduction captures it. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. On the basis of God and what he has done for you, you can experience the fullness of God's grace and peace that God intends for you to know as his child. So a magnificent introduction that kind of establishes some themes that will be unpacked as we work our way through the letter. Starting in verse 3 through verse 12, in the Greek language, it is one long run-on sentence. If you were to turn this paragraph in uh, to an English class, that's what would happen. This is a, a long, redundant sentence. But it's important to understand, in the Greek language, this is a sophisticated, elegant, impressive paragraph. As a matter of fact, Peter's use of the Greek language is so impressive, it is so elegant, it is so sophisticated, that there are some modern-day scholars who dismiss the idea that Peter wrote the letter by no basis other than he was just a dumb fisherman. There's no way that dumb fisherman wrote this letter. It is kind of this reminder of an attitude that kind of pervades our culture today, that there's certain people, there are certain vocations uh, that kind of have this elitist attitude that there's a certain group that are smarter than everyone else and they kind of get it and everybody else, by and large, is kind of dumb. There's this idea that unless you are college educated with all these degrees behind your name, you really can't be very intelligent. Now, I have a high view of education. I have a fair amount of it myself. But there needs to be a reminder that going to college is only one of many ways to get educated. I would suggest to you some of the smartest, most intelligent, most thoughtful, most deeply thinking individuals I know are blue-collar tradespeople, farmers, ranchers, people that work with their hands and make their living that way. These are people that are incredibly intelligent. It's very important to remember that while the culture around you may underestimate what God can do through you, 
Never limit the possibilities. The world around you may say you're average and maybe even a little bit dumb. Because that's what they said of Peter. Yet the reality was that under the power and inspiration of the Spirit of God, Peter, the dumb fisherman, wrote one of the most intelligent, elegant, sophisticated letters in the New Testament. If you're willing to trust God, God can use anyone to do amazing things for him. The opening word in verse 3, blessed, is a powerful Greek word that would be similar to the Old Testament kind of explosions of praise and worship. A lot of scholars refer to this as kind of an opening explosion of worship, a doxology that opens Peter's letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's praising God for what? who according to his great mercy. I'm going to take this a phrase at a time because it is just so loaded up. So first of all, the idea that this is something God has done. This is something God has caused. This is not something you've earned. It's not something you deserve. This is not something you've somehow merited. It is fully caused by God, and it flows out of his great mercy. When the New Testament uses the phrase according to, it means in proportion to. It is very different from the phrase out of. So here's the idea. If I am a multimillionaire and I want to help the hurricane victims, if I send $10, That's $10 out of my fortune. But if I was going to give according to my fortune, it would be $10,000, $100,000. It would be something that's much more proportionate to what I have. This is not just a little bit of mercy out of God's great mercy, but this is actually according to his great mercy. Paul describes... Uh, God as rich in mercy and out of the richness of his mercy according to his mercy God has caused this to happen according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead so he's caused us to be born again You can only imagine that Peter is reflecting on the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus recorded in John chapter 3. When Jesus was telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not remodeled, not fixed a little bit, not spray painted over the rust, but it is a transformation that is so radical It can only be described in radical terms such as born again. Born again to a living hope. In the New Testament, the word hope is never used in the sense of wishful thinking. Like, I hope the sun shines tomorrow. It is always used with the sense of something that is absolutely guaranteed, but it is yet future. 
It is a living hope because the one that made the promise is still living and will keep his promise. It's connected to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Again, remembering this is being written well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, including Peter himself. So God has caused you to be radically changed, born again. To what? To a living hope that is made possible because Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he is a living Savior. Years ago, when I was living in Chicago, I worked for a guy that owned a music studio in downtown Chicago, and a few blocks from that, he owned a loft where he would take clients and guests to entertain them. Most of my work was at the loft, uh, and it was kind of a crazy place. This was in the 70s. He had a jacuzzi, at a whirlpool, at all this crazy neon art. Uh, in the kitchen sink, there were all these buttons on the sink, and if you push different buttons, you got different flavors of soda coming out the faucet. And, you know, clear back in the 70s, all of that was kind of wild and unusual. Well, over the months, we kind of became friends, and on one occasion, he said, Brian, I'll tell you what. You tell me a Saturday night, and I will vacate the place. You can invite all your friends and you can have a party in the loft. Well, as a student living in the dorm, that seemed like a rather appealing offer. So we picked a date after spring break, began to invite people to the party. We were getting everything basically ready, went home for spring break. When I got back from spring break, I went to the music studio to get the last updates for the party, and I was informed that the owner had died in his sleep during the break. I'll never forget the receptionist looking at me when she informed me and saying, that means no party. (laughs) I believe that the owner was fully sincere when he made the promise that I could have a party there. I think he believed that with all of his heart. But once he died, the promise died. This is the significance of a living hope. This isn't some religious guru from 2,000 years ago offering crazy promises with no power to fulfill them. This is a resurrected Savior who is alive in the presence of the Father today who intends to fully fulfill Every promise he's made. It is a living hope. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So what is this living hope that is guaranteed but yet to come. It is this absolutely magnificent inheritance. We have been made an heir to the family fortune of God. 
It is a fortune that is so magnificent. It can never be destroyed. It can never be corrupted. It can never be diminished. Oftentimes you've heard me describe our future with those terms. It can't be destroyed. It can't be corrupted. It can't be diminished. This is the text where that comes from. It is an inheritance that is so sure. It is so guaranteed that it's actually already in place in heaven reserved for you. Whether you understand this or not, if you have trusted Jesus as Savior, this is something that is the fulfillment of God's elective choosing choosing since before the foundation of the world. This is something that God has caused to happen, that flows according to his great mercy, that you would be radically born again with a living hope that is guaranteed because Jesus is the living Savior. You, as God's child, have been made an heir to the family fortune that is so sure it's actually already in heaven, reserved for you with your name on it, ready for you. So in our insecurities, we still think, but what if? What if, you know, what if I blow it? What if I mess up? What if I don't endure under the persecution? So he addresses that. Verse 5. In heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The idea of protected is a military term. It's continuous present. It is you are constantly being guarded and protected. The promise in Philippians is that God is going to finish what he started. He's going to get you to the finish line. It's very similar to what Peter is saying here, that this is not something where you're on your own, and I hope you make it there. You are guarded and protected continuously to get you to the finish line in order that you will experience all that God intends when Jesus returns. That's what the reference to the last time is. When Jesus comes back and your salvation reaches its fullness as promised by God. So here's the deal. If you have never trusted Christ as Savior. What we're describing this morning is what is freely offered to anyone who chooses to receive it by faith. For those who have trusted Christ as Savior, whether this week you walk through the doors feeling like you're super Christian, or whether you walk through these doors this morning feeling like you're loser Christian, whether right now life for you is good or whether right now life for you is incredibly painful, whether you walk through these doors feeling confused, feeling hurt, feeling forgotten, feeling abandoned, wonder if God is really in his heaven and whether he cares at all. Your performance has not brought this to pass. God caused this. And according to the richness of his mercy, you have been radically born again. 
to a living hope that is guaranteed because the promise was made by a living Savior. It is so sure that it's already been reserved in heaven for you. The family fortune already has your name on it. And you are continuously, daily, guarded and protected by God, guaranteed to get to the finish line that when Jesus comes, you will be the recipient of this absolutely magnificent fulfillment of the promise of salvation. That is absolutely yours in Christ. The only thing in the text that God asks of you is that you would just believe it. This is not something you earn or deserve. All he's asking is that you just believe it. That you believe that God tells the truth. And whether for you right now life is good or life is just absolutely terrible, your future is absolutely magnificent. And it can't ever be changed. It can't be corrupted. It can't be defiled. And it can't be diminished. Starting in verse 6 then, he deals with kind of the reality of the present day struggle. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, meaning while we're on earth, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So he acknowledges now, while we are aliens living out our faith on this earth, we may endure various trials. The language is kind of generic. It could be anything that you're going through that makes life really hard right now. The phrase, if necessary, carries the idea that this is not like a lottery where maybe you got lucky and drew a good ticket or maybe you weren't so lucky and drew a losing ticket. It's the idea that there was a plan and a purpose to all this. Even though to you it may be confusing, it may make no sense, you wonder where's God in all this and could God possibly even care? What we know is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God as a trinity is fully engaged in you as his child, properly preparing you for the day of his return. The idea of if necessary is saying God is up to something. You may never understand this in your lifetime, but that doesn't mean there isn't a plan and a purpose to what God is doing. You may need time in the wilderness school of leadership. You may need time in boot camp because there is a war coming. You may need to train in order to run the marathon. God's up to something and he's doing what is necessary in order to properly prepare you for what is to come. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So again, referring to this all reaches its climax or its fulfillment when Jesus returns. So all of history is moving toward that moment. He uses the illustration of gold and gold in the refiner's fire. That the struggles, the trials, the testings we go through are like that fire that is refining that gold. It's very important to hear what he's saying. The fire does not make the gold gold. It simply burns away the impurities and reveals the pure gold that is there. The dross comes to the surface and it is removed. In the same way, he's not saying that you have to prove to be a Christian in the trials to be saved. That would be the opposite of what he just said. What he is saying is this is all true, caused by God flowing according to his great mercies. But in order for the pure gold to be revealed, it is necessary to burn away the impurities, to burn away the dross in order to unveil and expose the, the pure gold that is there. So when Jesus returns, it is a glorious moment of celebration and praise. The return of Christ is not something to be feared. It is not something to dread. It is not something for which we bite our nails and hope in that moment somehow we get through. It is just the opposite. It is the moment, finally, after all the struggles, all the trials, all the heartaches, all that defines this life, the return of Christ is the moment where it finally comes to an end. And our salvation is fulfilled and we are everything that God promised we would be. It is a moment of absolute glory and praise. But as part of the celebration of that moment, the fires, the struggles, the trials of life are burning away the impurities so that is as glorious of a moment as it possibly could be. Verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What he is saying is Peter is realizing he actually walked with Jesus. He actually saw the resurrected Jesus. These people love Jesus, but they've never actually seen him. These people believe in Jesus, but they aren't seeing him now. They see him through eyes of faith. And yet they believe with all their hearts, even in the midst of the persecution they're going through, that this is true. And it fills their hearts with inexpressible joy. This is the foundation of hope-filled living in the midst of a culture of despair. It has nothing to do with the outward circumstances. It has nothing to do with a hundred things every day you can't control. It has to do 
with what is absolutely true of you in Christ, which can never be changed or lost or diminished and will absolutely reach its fulfillment on the day of the return of Jesus Christ. What Peter describes as the outcome, the salvation of your souls. The verb tenses would indicate that we are experiencing a taste of it, a glimpse of it now, but the fulfillment is ultimately yet to come. As I said before, regardless of whether this past week you would look at your week and say, I think I was like super Christian, or whether you look at this past week and you say, I think I'm loser Christian. Blew it again, messed up. Or maybe for you, your life right now is just so full of pain and struggle and uncertainty and confusion. And there's so much of you that feels abandoned and lost and wonder, does God even care? What Peter is saying, actually, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are on the job. They're so committed to this that all three members of the Trinity, busy at work. And what has been promised to you is almost so magnificent, it's almost unbelievable. I would say through this week, I kind of hovered on the edge of this just seems too good to be true. It's almost unbelievable that God would choose sinners and misfits and losers and make them heirs to the family fortune forever. As a matter of fact, that's kind of what he says in verses 10, 11, and 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What he just said is this has been the unfolding plan of God for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And as the Old Testament prophets wrote, they wrote of this magnificent day when God would become flesh, when the Messiah would come, when salvation would be offered. And yet they struggled to understand who exactly are these people and when is it going to happen? They searched in order to try to figure it out. And what they understood is this is not us. This is written for some generation yet to come who would someday experience the fullness of this magnificent salvation that God is unfolding. It is something so magnificent that the prophets longed to experience it but understood it would not be their generation. So magnificent that the angels actually long to watch what is transpiring because it is so unimaginable flowing out of the mercies of God. Do you understand what Peter just said? 
that for thousands of years, the prophets and the angels wondered who would be the generation of people who would experience the reality of this magnificent truth. And what Peter just told you is it's you. Do you understand for thousands of years, the prophets longed for the day when they might be the generation that experiences the absolute wonder of what Peter has just described. But they settled the fact it wouldn't be us. It wouldn't be us, but it will be somebody someday. That somebody someday is us today. It is an absolutely magnificent truth that lays the foundation for hope-filled living. Through no merit of your own, through no performance of your own, when you were nothing more than a sinner, misfit, and loser, subject to God's judgment, for reasons only God understands, in the wonder and the mystery of his will, he chose and he, according to his great mercy, has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In order that you might receive the, uh, this magnificent inheritance, that you might be heir to the family fortune of God that can't ever be lost it can't ever be corrupted. It can't ever be diminished. It is so sure that it's actually already in heaven for you, guarded and reserved with your name on it. God is so committed to this vision that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit guard you continually every day to get you to the finish line in order that you might experience the fullness of your salvation when Jesus returns. So even though now we go through trials and struggles and heartaches, we remember that in the midst of all of that, God is in a process of doing something, changing us and purifying us, getting us ready for this magnificent day. When Jesus returns, our salvation is fulfilled and it will be glory in the presence of God forever. Sometimes, as a result of a sermon, you need to go out and do something. But sometimes, as a result of a sermon, you just need to go out and believe something. Virtually the only thing God asks of us in this entire opening paragraph is that we would just believe. Truth that is so magnificent, it hovers on the edge of unbelievable. And yet we wrestle with the question, either God is a liar, in which let's quit this nonsense and walk away, or he tells the truth. And if he tells the truth, then this is true of you in Christ and is the foundation upon which we live as hope-filled 
people in a culture of despair. One of the great opportunity we as a church together have to celebrate this magnificent salvation together is through baptism. If you have trusted Christ as Savior, if I have just described you this morning out of Peter, but you have never taken that step of obedience to be publicly baptized, that would be a wonderful way to celebrate this magnificent truth. The first full week in October, the 7th and 8th, we are having our fall baptism service. If you don't understand baptism or you have some questions, we're offering a class next week. You can ask someone at the information centers about that. If you understand it, all you have to do is call the church office, say, I want to be baptized. They'll walk you through the process. But it's one of the highlights of the year as we celebrate this magnificent salvation together. And I would encourage you to think about that if you've never been baptized. My prayer for all of us is that we would have the faith and the courage, no matter what's going on in our lives, to believe. God does tell the truth. Our Father, we celebrate this morning this uh, almost unbelievable description of what we have in Christ. Lord, my prayer is that we as your children would believe this with all of our hearts, that this might become the foundation upon which we live as hope-filled people, even in the midst of a culture of despair. Lord, that our light might shine so brightly that others around us might come to know this same Jesus, in whose name we pray.